following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This morning we are looking in the book of Haggai, and uh, if, you, if you don't know where Haggai is, it's in your Bible in the Old Testament, but go to Matthew and then go back three books. It's the only way I can ever find it. If you start at Genesis, it will take you till the service is over. <laughs> All right. And uh, the title of my message this morning is The Terrible Goodness of God. And... Um, As we begin, let's read through the first few verses of chapter 1. Just to kind of review the context, the story, the setting. On August 29th, the second year of King Darius' reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying... The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but you are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. Amen? Amen to that. Wages going to pockets. The bot keeps sinking, right? This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. Now go up into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it, and be honored, says the Lord. You hoped, for rich, you hoped for a rich harvest, but they were very poor. And when, you, and when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. Well, all of you are busy building your own fine houses. It is because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Wow, there's some encouraging words. All right, let's all sing Kumbaya. Wow. Wow. why would, I, why would I want to pick a book like this to preach on? It just sounds so bleak and horrible. It paints this picture of this God who's harsh, who's just ready to zap and squash people who step out of line, right? Well, there really is something terrible about the goodness of God. And as we look through this, I want to assure you that I believe God's heart in what he's dealing with Israel here is motivated and comes from absolute goodness. But it's an absolute goodness that is not Santa Claus. Okay? Our God is not a kind, grandfatherly, weak and helpless being who can do nothing but pander to our self-interest. God's goodness is much deeper and more powerful and much more good than that. 
And in fact, in Haggai, we see this amazing picture of really the terrible goodness of God. A goodness that is willing to do very hard things in the life of his children for the sake of his glory and their benefit. Let's just pray as we begin. Father, we, uh, we want to be very careful that you speak your heart and your words to us from this passage. Lord, it would be so easy to go over the edge one way or the other and uh, say things from this passage that are not really in line with your character or being or purpose. So Lord, we ask that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would give us a deeper and fuller and greater picture of who you are and your heart for us, your plan and purpose for our life. And Lord, we, we do thank you for these high school students and other graduates and we, we pray for your purpose in their life. And Lord, we pray the same thing, that that purpose would be unfolded in our life as well. That we would be crystal clear about the most important things in life and would commit ourselves to those things. So we just ask for your spirit to guide us and teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The thesis of this, what I just read, is really the first real sermon that Haggai gives in the book. And in the first few verses, he gives the thesis or the main point of the sermon. And it really is simply, if you could put it in kind of more common language, it is, it is what is the most important thing in your life? Uh, what is really the top priority in your life? Uh, and I would ask you the same question this morning. What is the most important thing in your life? Now, these Israelites would have answered much as I think all of us would, have, would answer. Well, God's the most important thing, Right? We know that anything else is is not enough. That God is to be the supreme, most important, all-consuming thing in our life. And I think if you were to ask this group of Israelites that same question, they would have said, absolutely. In fact, you've got to understand, this group of people had been exiled in Babylon for for about 50 years. Uh, Many of them, or perhaps most of them, had been born in Babylon. They weren't coming home to a place they were familiar and comfortable with. They were really going to a new and strange country. It may have been their passport country, but like your typical third culture kid, they never lived there, okay? They never even visited. And so these are people that picked up their homes, their families, pulled up stakes, and went to this strange new place where life was not easy. Okay, the city was in ruins. There were no 7-Elevens. You know, Lotus hadn't been built yet. It was tough, and uh, the, the fields were in ruins, the houses were in ruins, the buildings were in ruins, and they had made great sacrifices to leave the comfort of home, go to a new and strange place, to, to really carry out God's purpose and will. They came specifically to rebuild the temple of God, which had been totally destroyed. So these were people on a mission, these were people sacrificing, leaving a home and family, taking the hard path. Right, very similar to a lot of you. You would say, "Oh, that sounds like me. I've left. I've left my home country. I'm in a strange and foreign land. Only we have 7-Eleven, and uh, and uh, but it's hard. And we're on a mission. Surely, God is important. Surely, God is the most important thing in their life. Surely, God is the most important thing in our life. But Haggai says, um, "Okay, you know that's all good and well and good. But let's look at the facts." You are living in beautiful, well-finished, paneled houses while God's house lies totally ruined, 
empty, broken, and abandoned. Tell me where your priorities are. And they had nothing to say. So that's the message of the book. Um, And we need to answer one question right up front, and that is, why is God so concerned about building the temple? Why is it such a big deal? Well, you've got to understand that in, in, in the Old Testament, the life of worship, both individually and corporately, revolved around the temple. Uh, as we shared last week, God, from, from the exodus out of Egypt onward, desired that there be a house for him, a temple, a tabernacle, a tent, a dwelling, in the midst of his people so that his presence could dwell there. Okay? God's heart in all this is that his presence would dwell in their midst, and he can't do that under the Old Testament model without the temple. The temple was the place that became a holy ground set apart for God where his holy presence would dwell. If they wanted to commune and have a personal encounter with the presence of God, there had to be a temple. That's just the way it worked. No temple, and their relationship, communion, and fellowship with God was, was very limited. Okay, that doesn't mean that God wasn't there. It doesn't mean they couldn't pray. It doesn't mean that God wasn't looking after them. We know that God is everywhere present. But in terms of encountering and experiencing God's full presence as God desired, it required a temple. And so, as you read through this passage, if you lose this part of it, it seems kind of harsh and cold. If you think what God is after here is just, you know, all the other gods get cool temples and he doesn't get a cool temple, and he's feeling kind of all bent out of shape, because, I mean, look at all the watts in Thailand. I don't even get one house. If you have that perspective, you get this picture of a God who's kind of jealous and in the wrong way. But if you understand that God's heart, God doesn't need the temple for himself, okay? He inhabits the heavens. All the universe is his, all right? He has a throne room in heaven that is filled with angels and myriads of angels in glory, okay? He doesn't need the temple. He doesn't need Israel's worship. He doesn't need anything. But he desires to have communion and fellowship with his people. And so what God is really about here is he's, he's really pursuing the priority of fellowship or communion between God and his people. And that can't happen in a place where people are busy about their own lives, doing their own thing, but totally neglecting God's house. Okay? And God says, look, in practical terms, the, the reality is you are ignoring me and you're quite preoccupied with your own selfish interests. I'm not important in your life. Right? Fellowship and communion, seeing God's presence manifest in your midst and your community is obviously not that important to you because you've been here 15 years in, in the land and you've done nothing. You've done nothing. So the question is, for these people, is God really important? Is he really the center of their life, the center of their being? And that was important to God, not for his sake, because he needed it, but for their sake. And God had been faithful to bring them out of exile, to put them in the land. He says, are you going to be faithful to commune in fellowship with me? Or to put it in another perspective, you know, God created the universe, the world, He set apart Israel as a nation. They were really the center of God's universe. God's whole plan and focus was was pointed toward Israel. And he could say, look, you have been the center of my universe. 
Am I the center of your universe? I have focused all my time and energy and attention on you. Uh, and you have also focused all your time and energy and attention on you. Okay? We, need to, we need to change things. Um, God is to be important in our life. Now, uh, when we use the word important, I think all of us would agree with that, but I'm not sure we would all agree with it for the same reason. I think for some people, God is important kind of like health insurance is important. Okay? Can you live without health insurance? Well, yeah, pretty much. Okay, none of you are here today because of health insurance. Well, some of you maybe <laughs> are here because you had health insurance and you know, the whole brain transplant thing worked because they could pay for it. And we're glad you're here. But for the rest of us, we're probably here just because we're here and health insurance hasn't made it possible for us to be alive today. But we have it in the event that someday in the future we... We may need it in an, in an emergency. And so health insurance is important to us because someday we know we're going to have an, an emergency and we may need it. A lot of people, God's important to them like that. You know, he doesn't make any difference in their life today and it has no bearing on their existence or being today. But they're thankful they've got him around because someday you're going to get in trouble, you're going to get into an emergency and it's great to have health insurance. Some people, I think, see God as important like that. But God doesn't want to be important like that. He wants to be a priority in our life like water is a priority in our life. You may not be here because of health insurance, but you are here because of water. Okay? I guarantee that you have all consumed water within the last 24 hours, right? Anybody? Okay, not consumed water in the last 24 hours? So we need to get this guy a drink, okay? Because it's not good. We... Water is important to us because it's vital to life. We can't live without water, right? Uh, if, if, uh, if you've been, you know, it's been really hot lately, I just can't seem to get enough water. And I drink and drink and drink, and then you're out in the hot sun, and you feel thirsty, right? Because your body knows that its existence depends on this stuff. And uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever gotten severely dehydrated, gone into... Uh, shock. You know how critical water is. Sickest I've ever been in my life was uh, on a very, very long run. I didn't drink enough. I got severely dehydrated, went into shock. I almost died. And I was so sick, I wanted to die. I felt horrible. And I was reminded, water, I need water, right? God should be important to us like that. We should have the sense about us that we cannot live life <coughs> without God. That he is the very vital, sustaining force of our life. And that we must have his presence. We must have communion and fellowship with him. We must walk with him. All right? Is God important to us like that? Uh, do we have a sense about us that we could not be where we are today if it weren't for God working in our life? <clears throat> I think too often in our lives we know that in our heads, but much like... Israel in Haggai's day, it's not real. Uh, it's, it's theoretical. It's not something we thirst for with the very fiber of our being. <coughs> well, Haggai in his sermon, verse 4, he says, You know, is it time for you to live in these luxurious houses when my house lies in ruins? Verse 5, this is what the Lord of hosts says Look carefully, consider carefully your life. He says, you guys need to stop for a moment and take inventory of what's going on in your life. All right? 
Um, and it's good for us because it helps us have some tools to evaluate if God is really important in our life or not. And here's the problem. If you were to ask these people, is God important? They would have said, absolutely, he is the most important thing in our life. But God had a different perspective on it. Uh, if, if God were to evaluate your life, what would his perspective be? Would he see things in the same light that you do, that I do? How do we measure or evaluate or test uh, the place God has in our life? Well, if we could put ourselves under a microscope, if we could evaluate ourselves carefully, how would we do that? Well, oftentimes, we measure ourselves in terms of our intentions. Okay, I'm very good at this, and I like this method a lot. It, it looks something like this. I intend to be a good Christian, therefore I am a good Christian. I intend to be godly, therefore I must be godly. You know, I want to be a person who prays nine hours a day. Therefore, I must be pretty, pretty prayed up, right? I want to be a person who's just dripping with the word of God. I long for that. So therefore, it must be true of me, right? Right? Well, you know, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but the reality is, if we're honest, oftentimes that is how we evaluate ourselves, we believe that because it's our deep desire and intention to be serious, committed, faithful followers of Christ, that because it's an intention, it therefore must be true. I think that's what the people in Israel, in Haggai's day would have said. They would say, look, we, we want to build the temple. We came here to build the temple. We're excited to build the temple. We've had planning meetings to build the temple. We've got pictures. We've got our mission statement. You know, We've got it all spelled out. Therefore, it's as good as built. right? God must be important to us because look at, all the, look at all the determination and will and intention we have about this project. But God says that's not a fair or reliable test because the reality is that we always see ourselves in much better life than the truth is. Okay, we love to paint a picture of ourselves that oftentimes is, is much better than reality. And so we need a reality check. We need some way to evaluate, evaluate our life in terms of what is real. And so that's what Haggai does here. Well, really what God does here for these people. He says, look at your lives. Take a look at your life. Forget your intentions. Forget your dreams. Forget what you think you are. Look at your reality. Okay, he says, here's your reality. You have worked like a dog, planting much. You've gone out, you have worked hard, you have slaved, you have planted huge fields, you have harvested very little. You have, you have brought home and, and taken what you've harvested and you've made it into bread and you've eaten, but you're still hungry. You've taken and you've picked the grapes off the vine and you have drunk, literally in the Hebrew it says you've drunk, but not enough to get drunk. <laughs> Don't you hate that? You know, you've got to drink, but it's not enough to get drunk. I hate that. Uh, not enough, okay, to satisfy your thirst. All right? You put on clothes, but they're threadbare. They're not enough to keep you warm. Uh, you have labored and toiled and slaved away, and you have got... Wages, and you put it in your little purse, your little coin bag, 
But when you get home, you open it up to find out that there was a hole in your bag and it's gone, right? I have personal experience with this one. When I was a little kid, kind of a side diversion story, when I was a little kid, I lived in the mountains of Colorado, and uh, it was a tough place to grow up. You know, we had to walk 12 miles through the snow both ways to school, all that kind of stuff. And uh, one, of the, one of the most brutal tricks of living there was Halloween. And I remember numerous Halloweens, we'd get dressed up, all excited to go get candy, and it would just be freezing cold and snowing. And I remember one year, my brother was about six or seven years old. I was probably eight or nine. And, you know, the houses were miles apart. And we tra- traipsed through waist-deep snow, just agonizing, getting from house to house to get our little 12 pieces of candy, right? And we just went around. We spent I don't know how long in the dark, freezing cold, my poor little brother just dragging his little sack along behind him. And uh, we finally get home after hours. And my brother dragging his sack through the snow and it just had dissolved the bottom of his bag. And he got home and it was, there was nothing. It was just an empty bag. Well, that's, he had a Haggai experience right there. You know? You go trick-or-treating and you get home and it's empty. Right? Um, short, short of it is that life was not going well for them. God's simply saying here, look at your circumstances. Life is not going well for you guys. Your effort and your labor is not being matched by the outcome. You're laboring, you're toiling, you're working, you are slaving, you are busy doing things, but the end result of all your labor and toil and busyness is nothing. You're not accomplishing anything. You're not benefiting from your labor. All right? Um... The, 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 the labor does not match the outcome. Uh, now, obviously, there are people who don't benefit because they don't work hard. But that wasn't the case for these people. Uh, to me, this is such a great picture of a lot of people uh, in our modern world who are so busy, who work so hard, who are weary and worn out and exhausted, and honestly, have nothing to show for it. There is no productivity to all their labor. They're toiling and toiling and toiling, and it's not accomplishing anything. Okay? If you look at your life and evaluate your life honestly, okay, here's a measure. If you're killing yourself, working yourself, wearing yourself out, and you can't come up with anything to show for it, it's a good time to stop and ask, okay, am I living by the right priorities? Do I have my priorities in order? Uh, it's kind of like being on a treadmill. Uh, now, in, I love to run. I used to run a lot more than I do now, and so now I'm just mostly getting fat. But sometimes I do run. And to run in Thailand, it's just too blazing hot, and so I've started taking up running on a treadmill because you can do it inside with air conditioned. And uh, the great thing about that is you get to do, this kind of like life. You get to work and work and run and run and run and run, and when you get done, you haven't gone anywhere, right? Well, that's kind of how people are doing life. A lot of people, they're just working and they're not getting anything done, so they turn up the speed on the treadmill. So they go twice as fast to go nowhere, right? That's what I see people all around. That's what, that's what life has become. We go nowhere just twice as fast or four times as fast. But it doesn't accomplish anything. That's not a sign of God's presence in our life. If God's presence is real in our life, 
I think the opposite will be true. We will work less and accomplish more. We will see greater fruit and effectiveness and productivity out of actually doing less. Not that God doesn't call us to work hard. We should work hard. But we should see some outcome of that. We should see some result. There ought to be fruitfulness. Uh, If we have our priorities lined up correctly, there ought to be fruitfulness in our life. Um, If God's presence is truly alive and active and powerful in our life, then all of our labor and activity and action should be going somewhere. It should be accomplishing something. There should be fruit. Now, the context of this, obviously, is very physical. God was putting a great deal of hardship on them physically. Uh, Let me just say that I think oftentimes life is very hard, and that's not necessarily a sign that things are not in order in your life. Uh, Circumstances as a whole may be horrible for you. All right? Uh, the, the thing that's interesting in this passage is, and we'll see a little bit later on, that actually, even when things went well, God made it go bad. Even when the circumstances were somewhat favorable, God would take the good crop and he would blow it away. Okay? I'm not talking so much here about the circumstances of our life as the outcome of our life. If God is truly the center, there will be fruit from our life. There will be some outcome. Now, that's not always measured outwardly. Uh, there are people certainly who labor for Christ in fields and don't see outward signs of that for many, many years. Maybe never in their lifetime. But there will be inward fruit in our life of joy and peace. There will be fruit and evidence of life in us. If you are worn out and weary and exhausted and burned out and just want to give up, and inwardly you feel empty... Something's wrong. I love, he says, he says, you eat, but you are not satisfied. Now, they weren't satisfied probably because they just weren't getting enough. But what a great picture of people who are trying to fill their life with things, but none of it ever satisfies. It's never fulfilling. And you eat more and more and more, you consume more, you seek more and more things to satisfy you. But it's never satisfying. Why? Because the only thing that will truly satisfy is when Christ is the center of our life. When he is the sustaining life force of our life. Because what we're hungry for in the end is him. And when we try to fill it with anything else, we'll be left hungry. So there'll be fruit. There'll be, there will be, in the end, there will be joy. Uh, you know, the, the picture of uh, drinking until you're drunk Uh, I don't know that he literally meant, you know, it's a bummer for you guys, you can't get drunk. I don't know that that's what he was saying. But there is something of a picture in that is of of being, of drinking in life to the point where there's joy and there's rest and there's satisfaction, there's fullness. Uh, Whatever our outward circumstances are, when Christ is the center of our life and things are going uh, by the priority he has arranged, all that business, busyness and activity of our life should have about it a sense of confident joy and peace in God. There should be assurance that life is right because I am right related to, rightly related to God. I am in communion and fellowship with Him and He has everything in His hands and yet I'm just being carried along by Him. There should be that sense about our life of fullness, satisfaction, joy, fruitfulness. That's where we need to put our life under the microscope. 
measuring life by the inward piece of our life. Okay? By the fruit that God is producing in us and through us. If there's no fruit in your life, then God's not at the center of it. Alright? It's just that simple. That's what Haggai's spelling out here. He says, look at your life. Okay, something is missing. Something's not right. Something's broken. Think about it, he says. Uh, well, what is the source of the trouble? Well, and, th- and this is where we get into some really fun theological stuff, okay? Um, where did all this drought and famine and starvation come from? Well, down in verse... Um, Nine, he says, You hope for rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Okay, this is a real nice God. You know, so you this guy who just got one handful of grain. He's carefully carrying it to his house to make a, his last loaf of bread. And, and <clears throat> the wind comes up and blows it all away. And then you find out that the one with the breath is God. Okay, how does that make you feel? Why? Because my house lies in ruin, says the Lord of Heaven's armies, while all of you are busy with your own fine houses. It is because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I, the Lord God, have called for a drought on your fields. I have brought a drought to wither the grain and the grapes and the olive trees and all of your crops. I have brought a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Wow. Uh, do you understand what God is saying here? Many of us understand it and don't really like it. Uh, in fact, I one time, right around the time of the tsunami here in Thailand, I remember a guy standing up and saying uh, he didn't understand where the tsunami came from or how it could happen, but he was sure and convinced of one thing, that it was not from the hand of God. That God in his goodness could never do something like that. I think Haggai would have a very different message. Haggai says over and over again, he, he, he calls God the God of heaven's armies. It's a description of the sovereignty of God over his creation. He makes it very clear that God says, look, all your problems have come at my hand. I, the God of creation, who created the world and the universe, and who, by the way, happened to know how to control the weather, I'm the guy with the remote control, I'm the one pushing the button, and I'm the one who turned off the rain. Okay? I did this to you. Well, some of our theology has a hard time with this, you know, because it's like, what happened to the God? What happened to Santa Claus? What happened to the kindly old God who just wants to love us and do good things in our life and make us all happy? I thought God was good. Well, the reality is God is good, uh, but his goodness is is deeper and greater than how we define goodness. We tend to define goodness in terms of our own comfort. If God really loves me and really is good to me, then he's going to fulfill my selfish whims, right? He's going to give me what I want. And he's going to make my life good. But God's goodness is much deeper than that because he realizes that the greatest need of the human soul is not a better crop, is not more bread, it's not, you know, a T-bone steak. 
Well, that sounds pretty good right now. Uh, God knows that the greatest good, the thing that we long for more than anything in the universe, is a relationship with him. Uh, God created this world and put us as the very focus and center of it because he wanted to have communion and fellowship with you and I. That's what this is all about. God sent his son, Jesus Christ of the world, to die on the cross, to endure the pain of it all, to pour out his blood, not so that we could go to Burger King. He did it so that we could have fellowship with him. Right? And so the greatest good, the thing that he created us for, the thing that is his heart more than anything else, is that you and I would have communion and fellowship with him. That he would be the center of our life, the center of our world, the thing around everything thing around which everything in our life evolves so that we could be truly fulfilled, happy, content people. And and here's the truth. He is so good, he is willing to squeeze the life out of us to bring us to the place where we know that. He loves us so much and he wants so desperately for us to have a personal encounter and experience with him that he is willing to squeeze us almost to the point of death in order to bring about that relationship with him. Because he's good. Because he's good. Because he doesn't want us to go through life and miss out on all that he really has for us. Because we settle for cheap substitutes. So the truth is, God can, and often does, place a very heavy hand on his children. I know from personal experience Okay, I have felt that heavy hand and I have felt his squeeze on my life. And I am so thankful for that squeeze, that crushing grip. Because when I yield to that grip, I've always found the loving touch of my father who desperately longs to hold me, to be close to me, for me to be close to him and to know who he is. Uh, The theology of Haggai is this, that God can and will go to extreme measures to get hold of his children, to be in their their midst, to live among them. Okay, the watch says time is up. So let me close with this thought. He says, because of all this, he says... um, This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. Go up into the hills, bring down timber, and start rebuilding. He says, do something. If you really want God to be, if you you really claim that God is first in your life, don't intend to do something, don't plan to do something, don't talk about doing something, start doing something. And he says to them, he says, go up in the hills and start cutting down trees, gathering timber. Now, the temple, if you know anything about the temple, is this massive structure. Massive, huge stones, right? Massive timbers that uphold the roof, all right? Around Jerusalem, there were like small trees. Nothing that would be needed to construct the temple. Okay, he doesn't say go out and start quarrying five-ton blocks of stone. He says go down and start chopping down trees. Well, what would these trees have been used for? Well, these trees would have been used for things like ladders, tools, scaffolding. Okay? He's not saying, you know, he doesn't say go to Lebanon and, you know, with Solomon he starts building these huge arrays of massive timber. He says simply, 
walk out of the city, go across the valley to the side of the hill and chop down a tree and drag it back and build a ladder. Okay? I love that. I love that picture. He says, you know, you've got to start somewhere. Start small and simple. Be obedient in small things. Be obedient. Sometimes we get so overwhelmed with the big, huge things. And we read these biographies of these guys who pray all day long and have this deep, you know, kind of transcendent thing with God where they, you know, have this huge spiritual thing. And we, we, we want that. And God says, don't, don't worry about that. Start small and be faithful every day with little things. Do the little things. Be in the Word. Be in prayer. Follow the spiritual disciplines. If you don't know what that looks like, there's lots of good books on the simple way to have a daily walk, daily communion, daily fellowship with God to experience Him. Uh, Start with the Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Great place to start. Start with the little things, but build. And specifically, uh, start building my house. What God longs for you and I more than anything is not that we know more about the Bible, although that's good, not that we have our theology perfectly articulated, although that's good. Jesus didn't die on the cross for great theology. Okay? Jesus' death on the cross is good theology, but that's not why he died on the cross. Okay? Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could be super Bible trivia quiz man. Right? Okay, it's good if you can do that, because I'm sure when you get to heaven, there's probably some special prize for that. That's not why Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross for one simple reason. So that you could be best friends with God. So that you could be in close fellowship and communion every day with the living, amazing God of the universe. That's all it comes down to. And he says to you and I, meet me today. Simple, small. Build a space in your life where I can live and dwell where my presence can be a part of your life every day. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you so much for your presence in our life. God, it is amazing that you are not a God who lives countless light years away in the far realms of heaven. Although you are a transcendent God who who does exist beyond the boundaries of creation. But you have chosen to step into creation, to step into our lives, to be present with us because you created us for communion and fellowship with you. And indeed, you will stop at nothing. You will go to incredible lengths to make sure that happens. Father, I pray that we would be honest as we look at our life, as we evaluate our busyness, our activity. Father, we want to have lives that are fruitful and productive because our lives are filled with Christ, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is your life that flows out of us and does great things in us and through us. Lord, may you be the center of all that we are and do. And may we just walk humbly with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. 
For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.